0: Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today, he's a life coach, fitness coach, motivational speaker, and author. It's Sean Crane. How are you doing today, Sean?
1: I'm doing well, Alex. Thanks you for having me here.
0: I'm excited to learn more about you and your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up.
1: Yeah, I'm from Santa Barbara, California. Um, Beautiful small town about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. As a kid, I grew up right on the beach, going to the beach, playing sports. Uh, Really nice, quiet community, a lot of friends. Things seemed great. You know, I had so much fun as a kid. Um, So I'm very passionate when it comes to athletics. I love baseball, football, basketball, and then surfing growing up as a kid. And family. I had a big extended family of aunts, uncles, and cousins who all lived in close proximity. So we had a lot of people around all the time, and it was really nice.
0: Living in California, did you kind of have that um, the stereotypes growing up, like the beach lifestyle and kind of wanting to be active any way possible?
1: I mean, that's just how I, I was. I don't recall any stereotypes or stuff like that. I didn't really – at a young age, I just wanted to go play with my friends and have fun. I love sports. I used to watch – ESPN sports center at nine years old and envision myself being in the major leagues, you know, in baseball, um, being on TV. And I just wanted to be a professional athlete from the earliest age that I can remember.
0: What is something that sports taught you growing up?
1: It taught me to have confidence in my ability. It taught me to, you know, challenge myself daily. Um, I think it instills a lot of discipline in children as well as the ability to Uh, socialize beyond our school setting. I think that it teaches you how to follow instruction from your coach and then um, to work in groups, right, with people and to communicate. So a lot of beneficial uh, qualities, absolutely.
0: Was there ever an activity or a sport that you did that you always wanted to go maybe professional with? Or was it more just the recreational side and being with people?
1: Yeah, it was baseball. So two things, baseball and surfing. When I was about Eight to 12, it was baseball, and at age 12, I fell in love with surfing, and I actually stopped playing baseball for a little bit because I just wanted to surf every day, and that was my passion at that time at 12 and 13.
0: Growing up, did you have any inspirations or someone that motivated you?
1: Yeah, there was some older kids, um, professional athletes that I saw on TV. Um, you know, in baseball, I really like Ken Griffey Jr., in um, surfing, I had favorite surfers that I would look up to. I would get all the magazines or watch all the surf videos. And, you know, anybody that was excelling in any of those areas, I wanted to be like them.
0: When you were growing up, did the different things that you wanted to do change over time as you got older?
1: Well, when I was 14, everything changed for me. Um, all my passion all my dreams, everything were just completely wiped away. Um, My freshman year in school, about the first month, my father was arrested and sent to prison. And he was arrested in front of us in a really dramatic fashion that it was scary. It was shocking. Uh, I just didn't know what to make of it at that time. And then shortly after my mother left our household, they were both addicted to drugs and alcohol my whole life. And I didn't really understand what was going on until I got older. And by then it was just, they were barely holding on, you know? And so when this happened, everything just crumbled. Uh, My whole life and reality up until that point was completely altered. So after that day that my dad was arrested, uh, I never played sports again in my entire life. And shortly after I stopped surfing, I stopped hanging out with my old friends. And I I really changed drastically in a very short period of time.
0: What did it do to you mentally? Like you talked about you kind of stopped doing the things that you enjoyed, but was there ever someone that was trying to bring you back into those sports and get your mind in a different groove?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what happened was I felt like I, I just lost love and any enjoyment in life. Everything went dark and everything went dark and um, I didn't know how to cope with the emotions I was experiencing. So I had obviously people who cared about me. I told you I had, a large extended family and my aunts and uncles, counselors at school, teachers at school, friends, parents, they would all try to reach out to me and they knew what I was going through, but I wasn't hearing it. I couldn't hear it. And my uncle Mike, who lived with us my entire life, my dad's oldest brother and really helped raise us. He's an amazing person with so much love, so much um, compassion. And he was always there trying to talk to me and to get through to me. And just to remind me, that my decisions in those moments were going to have a significant impact on my life going forward. And I would have regrets if I didn't play high school sports or go to college and pursue my dreams. But I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so um, without him there, though, I probably would have really, really hit rock bottom a lot sooner. But he gave me some form of hope and security at home that that helped me throughout those really challenging times in my life.
0: Was there ever a time that you were being tested, like, to not go down those wrong paths? Or were you able to have your uncle be able to keep you on a straight path throughout your time in high school?
1: No, no. Pretty quickly after my dad went to prison, um, I stopped going to school. I would just go for one class and then leave all day. I started hanging out with different kids who were going through their own struggles, and we could identify with that pain, you know, unconsciously. So we would smoke together, we would drink together. Um, And I I quickly realized that those things helped me to forget about my problems, that I could just be in that moment altered on some substance and I didn't have the pain or the reminder of what was going on in my life. So I started doing that and I stopped going home. I would go home very infrequently. Um, I mean, there was a time from 14 to 16 where I'd be home like an hour a day. I'd just come home and go to sleep. And then, you know, that's when my uncle was really trying to get through to me. And I had younger siblings that he was taken care of. And I don't think he knew the extent of my problems and how I was starting to abuse these substances. And really, they were getting a grip on me. And I was becoming addicted to these things. And the emotional trauma that I went through was still below the surface, just wreaking havoc on me internally.
0: Were you ever worried that something bad could happen to you while you were doing those things?
1: No, I was pretty careless. I didn't think about that ever.
0: During this time, what was next for you? What were you hoping to accomplish?
1: That's the thing. I had no vision, no goals. I was losing my identity. You know, I was becoming this person that I created to cope with that pain that I described. I was creating this persona to impress people around me. You know, I completely changed my mannerisms, my behavior, the way I talked, everything. I started becoming, you know, confrontational with people at school or out at parties. I was so distraught and I had so much suppressed anger and resentment towards my parents that I would go up to a party and end up getting in a fight with somebody I didn't even know for no reason. Or, you know, I'd be drinking at a friend's house and I would just make a scene or, you know, um, act irrationally. And I just was a mess, to be honest with you.
0: Looking at that time now, do you think a lot of people can relate where they try to change who they are in the setting that they are living? So you talked about after your dad went to jail that your whole world changed and you kind of changed your identity. Do you think people should be able to stay who they are, but not change for just the reasonings that they're going through?
1: Well, yeah, I think that we all have, you know, an authentic version of who we identify with, who we feel that is genuine to, to how, you know, to who we truly are. And it's hard when things happen Obviously, we're going to change some way or we evolve or we grow. But I think that's a lot different than what I went through. What I went through was um, creating, you know, new behaviors and, you know, really a new persona to try to protect myself because, you know, my true and authentic self was that wounded boy who was so sad to lose his parents. And I didn't want to face that. I didn't want to accept that that had happened to me because I was so ashamed and embarrassed and, and hurt by that. So I created this new, tougher version of myself who wouldn't back down from a challenge, who was confrontational, who was unpredictable. And that allowed me not to have to look at these wounds or feel them that often. And that's why I gravitated towards that behavior.
0: Were your friends that you left with the sports ever trying to reach out to you and build that relationship back with you?
1: Yeah, somewhat. Some of them I would see here and there, I'd still go spend time with. Um, as they got a little older, there was a couple who I still did hang out with. And so, but for the majority of it, I, I changed my, my friends and uh, my surroundings entirely.
0: After high school, what was next for you?
1: Yeah, so I had nothing going for me. So I had an uncle, thank God, who reached out to me, a different brother of my dad's, and said, hey, you know, what are you going to do after school? Um, obviously you're not going to college. You know, you need to think about what you're going to do. And he gave me a job working for him. He owned a tree service in my local community in our hometown. And so he was successful. Um, I had, I had nothing going for me at that time. So I went right into work. I remember I took two weeks off of school after I graduated, I did get a diploma. I was able to get my stuff together and, and go through the process of getting uh, a diploma. So Then two weeks later, I started working full time, um, dragging brush and, you know, uh, (laughs) carrying big pieces of wood up hills and just doing really very demanding uh, physical labor.
0: What did it teach you about the real world working at your first job?
1: So much. It was one of the best experiences of my life because growing up, I always had grit. I always had determination. That's what sports taught me. You have to be tough minded, you know, not just physically, but you have to be able to push yourself mentally through tough situations. So right away, I, I realized that about myself that, you know, if I challenge myself to work hard throughout the day, I can excel. And the great thing was at the time, I was working with family, my dad was actually back in the picture. So I got to work with him. And he and I started to develop a relationship that I had never had, which we grew really close in that time. Um, which was both positive and negative, and we can talk about that. But it taught me the value of hard work, and um, it felt really good at the end of the week getting money for my, my work and um, being able to provide and contribute financially in the household for my siblings um, and to give back to my uncle who had spent his whole life raising us.
0: When your dad came back into the picture, was he very upfront about the things that he went through and try to keep you on a path where you don't go down that same path like he did?
1: Unfortunately, no, he was still battling his own demons and he wasn't sober. He had been in and out of jail and prison from the age of 14 till 18. Um, And we became more like friends than father and son. So Rather than steer me away from that lifestyle, he saw that I was already one foot in the door, so to speak, and um, we became, you know, companions and developed a codependent relationship that was surrounded by, you know, that mentality, um, that negative mentality that I mentioned that glorifying, you know, certain things that lead down a, a really bad path in life, and then drinking and using together. And it just really evolved from there into a distorted relationship over the years.
0: With your uncles, did they kind of see that your father wasn't being a father and that they needed to step in? Because you talked about how you had to contribute financially, and you're at an age where you shouldn't have to be worrying about that at this time, and you should be able to save that money to what you want in the future.
1: Yeah, so there was a lot of confrontation between my uncle Mike, who was his oldest brother who helped raise us or did raise us essentially. And my dad, I mean, it was a daily thing. It got to the point where I'd be in the middle of them preventing a fight or the cops would be coming. Uh, It was a a daily battle to try to try to figure out how we're going to deal with the situation and navigate through it. Because on the one hand, we have this home that we're staying in. You need to pay the bills. My sister and my, my brother, both younger than me, are still going through school and we're trying to care and provide for them. But our home was just a disaster. I mean, my father's alcohol abuse, um, my erratic behavior, and then my uncle trying to hold everything together. It was just like a storm brewing.
0: How long were you staying at the tree service company or were you thinking about transitioning into a different job?
1: I, I did that work from 18 until I was 23. Um, and I didn't have any other aspirations, you know, I was just barely holding on and I was in survival mode. And this is what had basically fallen in my lap, you know, and I think deep down inside, I thought maybe I was going to go into that line of work indefinitely and either open up my own business one day or take over the family business. But that was the extent of how far I thought into the future.
0: Was college never an option due to the situation that you were going through?
1: Yeah, that was never an option. I mean, I was fortunate to get a high school diploma. And at that stage of my life, I couldn't even, I couldn't conceive going to college. It wasn't an
0: option. So after, when you turned 23, what was next? What were you going to do next? And what was that path that you're on?
1: Yeah, so when I was 21 or 22, um, something had to change in our lives, the home life that we were all a part of was so dysfunctional, and it was causing harm to everyone. So what happened is we actually left the family home that I grew up in. Uh, I lived there from three until 21. And I think the landlord raised the rent. And you know, my dad wasn't working with us at that time, he had either gone back to jail or was in rehab or something like this was always happening. So it was just my income. My uncle was older, he was, I think he had gotten injury at work, and he had been laid off. And we couldn't, we couldn't live there anymore, we couldn't afford it. So I had a girlfriend at the time, and we decided we were going to move two towns over about an hour south to a different uncle's property. He allowed me to come and stay there and rent out a cottage he had in the back, another one of my dad's brothers. So at this time, I looked at it as, okay, I got to get out of Santa Barbara in this, this negative environment, these old friends. Like, it was really toxic for me. I was taking pills and drinking and doing drugs every day. I mean, I was just abusing stuff nonstop, and I was really dependent on these substances. So I looked at moving as a new beginning. Okay, I'm going to move. I have, you know, a girlfriend will have this um, new life to live, so to speak. So we moved to Ojai, which is um, an hour south of Santa Barbara, California. And I moved there. And I was working with a different uncle now. Same industry, same business, but my different uncle. And uh, for a little bit, things seemed like it could get better. Um, I was trying to get sober. I actually did get sober. I didn't drink for 10 months. I didn't smoke. You know, I I got a little bit of sobriety, Um, but I still had so much underlying issues that I hadn't dealt with, so much pain, so much suppressed emotion that it was only temporary. Um, And so at the age of 23, what happened was my dad was homeless. He was homeless. My mom had been homeless, right? This is where that path leads you. Um, and now we're all relocated in a different town. But I would go and see him and visit him. He and I had been so close and I couldn't just give up on him. I didn't want him just to die on the street. So I actually brought him to Ohio without even asking my uncle to his property to stay in the cottage. Now, this is a one bedroom cottage with me and my girlfriend. And I bring my dad here. I'm like, he's going to stay and just get himself well and back on his feet. We're going to feed him and help him to figure something out. And that turned into six months of him staying on the couch and living with us. So the same thing started all over again. He and I would drink together. um, The commotion would start, you know, everything just began again in a different setting. And so she actually left. She left me because she didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And that's when I just went completely um, like in a, a downward spiral. I went fully back into my drug and alcohol um, abuse, even more so than ever in my life. And I, at that time, I didn't have a care in the world. I was just so um, low, right? I was in such a low point in my life. I had no hope, no motivation. I didn't know where my life was heading. And that was really the beginning of my
0: demise. Did you During that time when your dad was living with you, did you ever realize or think like, maybe I need to get him out of this place so that I can get my life back together and maybe work on the relationship I had with my girlfriend, or you just didn't want to risk it and have your dad living on the streets and you wanted that security for him in a way?
1: Yeah, well, this was the burden that I carried around from the age of 14 until just recently was, um, you know, how do I make this work? You know, here's my dad. I love him. I don't want him to die on the street. Um, We were really close, you know, when I was growing up. Um, especially when we worked together. He was my best friend, you know, and I'd never been closer to anyone in my life because he had such a big heart. He was such a genuine, good person, but when he drank or used, you know, drugs, he turned into a completely different person. So it was just, it was a big challenge to figure out what to do. On the one hand, I didn't want any part of him or what he was doing. On the other hand, I couldn't let go because I didn't want him to die and, and feel regret for not doing something differently. So it was this constant battle internally for me. And it caused me so much harm, just as much harm as him initially going to prison because I had to relive this stuff every day of my life. That emotion that I experienced, that pain that I experienced when he went to prison and my mom left, I had to experience that over and over and over for you know eight more years after that incident. And that's what caused me so much harm. That's why I felt stuck mentally, physically, emotionally, and I couldn't change my life because I was still very much involved in that dilemma.
0: Getting back into that downward spiral, did it affect your working ethic in a way? Did it affect how you worked or how your uncle saw you work?
1: You know, a little bit. I took tremendous pride in being able to stay up half the night drinking and partying and then go work my ass off. Excuse my language, but that's that was my mentality that I was invincible, that I could stay up all night drinking and and taking pills and then go work hard the next day. And I did that for a while. And it was really dangerous because at that time I had, I had excelled in the company to the point where now I was climbing trees and I was up 50, hundred feet in the air for hours on end with a chainsaw and I'm still altered from the night before. And I could have easily died. I could have easily made a mistake that cost me, you know, my life. Um, But I was so careless and I didn't, I didn't care. I mean, I would drink before, Work to make myself feel right. I would take a handful of pills to just get normal. That's how um, bad my addiction and everything I was going through was. So towards the end, I did notice it. It was harder to get up out of bed. Um, I had to really, really push myself to get through those tough days at work. But it did instill a grit and work ethic in me that is still a benefit to this day. You know, it wasn't the right way to go about it, and it was, you know, very threatening to my life and well-being, but. Um, yeah, that's, that's where my mentality was at the time.
0: I think I can view uh, that situation with people using alcohol and then how it's affecting their lives is especially with college nowadays with the people and the pressure that people get with drinking and drugs and how they go to college for that fun lifestyle. But when reality is you're there to get an education to pave that path for the future. And I saw it all the times with friends where Alcohol would take over their lives and all they wanted to do was drink. They didn't. They would skip classes. And you see the after effects that happen when you start going down that path and they didn't get that college degree. They don't have a job. They're failing. They're just spending money to just go party all the time. And I think it plays an effect nowadays that with whole social media days and people seeing everyone drinking and stuff, it's causing a lot of harm mentally to those people and that we need those people to come in and help us in a way, any way possible. And especially with your job at that time, you could have one accident and you could be injured because you were so high up on those trees.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm lucky to be here right now for a number of reasons. Um, And I don't, I don't, I don't overlook that. You know, every day I feel really blessed and grateful to be alive because whether it was the amount of substances I was putting in my body on a given day or being so careless to do that type of life-threatening work altered, I could have easily lost my life or done something that could have really jeopardized my health.
0: During the downward spiral, did you hit that rock bottom at a time where your life completely changed for a long period of time?
1: Yeah, I mean, leading up, you know, to... So when I was 23 um, and my girlfriend left, that was heartbreaking for me because I had never gone through anything like that. So I was just so distraught. I felt like all the emotions from my youth, all the, you know, tough times and those situations I went through, it all came back and now it was all accumulating, right? It was everything together and I was just so broken. And uh, I actually... When, you know, I started partying again, I started going to back to Santa Barbara with my old friends and trying to escape these emotions. That's all I knew how to do was run from my true feelings, run from this reality and try to pretend it didn't exist. I was in denial my whole life. So one night we go to a party in Santa Barbara. I didn't know anyone there. We had just gone because a girl told me about the party that I knew and we were going to go and check it out. And uh, I was with a friend that I had known my whole life. Um, from five years old, he was someone that I had stayed in contact with throughout the years. We grew up playing sports together. We stayed in touch through high school, and then we had reconnected. And he was really my best friend at the time. So we went to a party on a really popular location in Santa Barbara called the Mesa. It's a beautiful area right on the coastline. And it was a, a house party, and there was tons of people, and it was you know a fun night. We were just talking and, and you know socializing, and the girl that had told me about the party showed up with three other guys. And I didn't know these guys uh, as far as like, we weren't friends. We had never hung out outside of that party, but we had heard of each other through acquaintances through other people. So we started talking and just socializing. We didn't know anyone else at the party. So we kind of just hung together and somewhere in the middle of that night, they got into an altercation with a random group of guys at the party. And so it looked like they were going to get in a fight in the kitchen And nothing happened. Uh, The commotion kind of died down, whatever. They all split up. So that was that. We went on throughout the rest of the night, drinking, talking, hanging out. And uh, everyone was going to leave. The party was kind of dying down. So we went outside. They were going to go one way. We were going to go the other way. So my friend and I, who I'd known since we were five, we were going to go to downtown Santa Barbara and go to a bar. Uh, They were going somewhere else. I don't know where they were going. As we left the party and were on the front yard, Um, that group of guys that they had been arguing with followed us out. So now there was a verbal confrontation. Everyone's face-to-face on the yard. You can tell there's going to be some type of fight. I mean, I I don't know if you've seen this happen, but at the end of the night, everyone's intoxicated. People are having words, and it turns into a wrestling match or a fist fight. So I thought that's what was going to happen, Um, and sure enough, it started to. um, the, The words were exchanged, and then people started throwing punches at each other. And I was right there, caught up in all of it. We were on the front yard. And when that happened, I saw a guy standing across from me and he was moving towards me like he was like we were going to fight. He saw me on the other side. I don't know who he was. I can't even remember what he looks like. Um, and as soon as we approached each other, I was blindsided, right? I was blindsided, which felt like I was being tackled by somebody. So I bear hugged him. I grabbed my arms around him and we're getting, I'm getting pushed back. And I slammed into a parked car and then onto the ground. And when this happened, I thought, okay, these guys are focused on me. They're trying to jump me. I thought that the guys that had started the fight were attacking me. So I'm holding this person on top of me, preparing to start getting kicked and hit in the face. And I thought I was going to start getting beat up and nothing happened. And so I kept trying to roll him off of me and I couldn't get this person off of me. It was really heavy. And I finally did after three, te- three or four attempts. And as I did, my only thought is that this person's attacking me. He's going to start throwing punches at me as soon as I stand up. So as I'm getting him off of me and and standing up, I threw two punches down towards him. And when I did, they kind of glanced his head like I didn't really hit him, but he didn't get up. He stayed face down in the grass. And as I'm standing up, you know, so much is going on through my mind and it's chaotic and I'm thinking, okay, that's weird. I didn't even hit him. Like, why does he not get up? And as soon as I stand on my feet, I hear Sean, let's go, let's go, let's go my friend who I had known since we were five standing in the street, yelling at me to let's go. So I started walking towards the street and I was limping because my leg and my lower back were really hurt in that crash into the car. I could barely walk. I had so much pain shooting through my leg. And as I get to the street and he's standing there, he's about two, three feet away from me. Now I get under the street light. And he looks at me and he's horrified. He's like, Sean, what the hell, man, you're covered in blood. And all of a sudden I just, see blood dripping off of my face. I look down, it's all over my chest and arms. And I'm talking about a lot of blood. Like I was covered in blood and I was just freaked out. I had no idea what was going on. And so he starts running up the streets. Like, let's go. We got to get out of here. By this time, there's people coming out of the house. You hear screaming and just noises. I mean, it's crazy. And you hear sirens too. The cops are already on their way. So I'm in reactive mode at this time. I have no idea what's going on. I just know he's running up the street. We were just involved in this fight. I'm not gonna just stick around. Like I was brought up a certain way where you, you don't just stay there, right? This was my mentality at the time. You get out of there. So we go up the street and he's in a laundromat off the street. And there's this, you can see it's a laundromat. And he's like waving me in. As I limp up the street, it's taking me forever. It's slow motion, kind of like in a dream where you can't run or move. I was going so slow. And as I go into the laundromat, cop cars race by on the street with their lights on, going to the house. And we get in there and he's like, take off your shirt, man. You can't walk around like that. You're covered in blood. So I take it off and he finds another shirt in the dryer and he throws it at me. I put it on and he had called a cab. So another block down the street, there was a cab. We limped over there. I limped over there and the cab was just waiting. It was like this getaway that was already set up, you know, Um, and I got in and we drove to his house. And by the time we got to his house, you know, I, I was so altered from all the drugs and alcohol that was in my system that night that I was trying to make sense of what was going on. And I could tell he was scared. He didn't know what had happened. Um, and we didn't really talk about it, you know, that night. We actually just passed out and fell asleep. So the next morning I wake up and it's one of those situations where you're like, oh my gosh, what happened last night? You know, instantly you're hoping that that was a dream. Like that was a nightmare. Everything's fine. You just, you know, but it wasn't. Something bad happened. We knew it. So I Googled, you know, fight on the Mesa and it said two people had been stabbed. One of them was in critical condition. So I knew this was serious. I knew that I was going to be detained and questioned. And in my mind, I thought that the cops were going to come and question me and try to get me to tell them what happened. You know, I didn't see what happened. I didn't see the guy get stabbed, but I thought that they were going to try to pressure me to say, well, who was at the party who was involved in the fight? That's really what I thought. So about, you know, four or five hours later, the, the SWAT team, uh, the canines, the forensic unit, everything comes and they take me at gunpoint, uh, really traumatic, you know. And so at this time, I realized, OK, this is it. Like, I'm, I'm going to go to the police station. They're going to question me. And they did. But <clears throat> what happened when I got there was that really quickly, they started questioning me in a manner that they were identifying me as the main suspect. Right. So early on, they told me, Sean, we think you did this. We know you did this. People at the party are saying they saw you fighting with the guy. Um, We found your bloody shirt. You know, it looked really bad. I mean, it couldn't have been written up in a book or a movie any worse than this to have all eyes pointed at me. So they charged me with attempted murder at the police station and they booked me in the county jail. And that's when my entire life started to change. That was the lowest point of my life.
0: When you were getting detained, did you kind of think, I'm going through the same situation as family members, basically, like what your father went through, and you didn't want to be going down that cycle?
1: Yeah, I mean, a couple of people have asked me that, actually, and in the moment, I didn't think of that, but that's not the life I wanted. That's not what I wanted to be a part of, um, but in that moment, it was just so surreal. I couldn't believe that they were charging me with attempted murder and that they were accusing me of this crime. I just couldn't believe it. It was like a a nightmare that you're just waiting to wake up from. And nobody ever thinks they're going to be in that predicament. You hear about it in movies. We've read about it in books. That guy that's charged for a crime he didn't do. But no one feels like they're ever going to be in that position until I was, and it was surreal.
0: As you were in jail sobering up and trying to take it all in, what was your next game plan basically to try to show the cops and everyone that I didn't do what I'm being charged for.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I assumed that the truth was going to come out between all the people at the party. Um, my friend who was there, who was right there, who saw everything. Um, I assumed that, you know, after they did their investigation, that the charges would be dropped or reduced to, um, assault because I threw a punch at the guy, you know, I threw two punches at him. Um, so what happened is the first day at court, I went there and the news press is there trying to take pictures of me. It was really a big event. Like it was a lot of commotion. And immediately my lawyer, who I had never met, comes up to me and says, hey, you know, how you doing? Um, just so you know, they're talking about amending your charges to homicide because it looks like the victim's brain dead and he's not going to make it. And he was as close to dying as possible. He was in a coma and they just assumed that he was going to pass away. Thank God he didn't. And he survived. So after that day, I never heard any more talk about me being charged with homicide. But that's how close I was to really losing my freedom, my life forever. And this man losing his life, life and his family losing him. I mean, it was that close. It was that serious. So that's the first thing I hear. And I'm coming off all these drugs and alcohol. I'm my body, my mind, everything's just going through so much distress I couldn't even take in those words and, and believe them. I couldn't even understand what she was saying. I was almost numb to it. I was almost um, like checked out. It was too much for me to take in at that time. But after that, what happened was, you know, I I was in jail now. And what am I going to do? I mean, I'm 23. I'm looking at doing decades in prison for a crime I didn't commit. How am I going to react to this situation?
0: Going through that time, what was going through your mind being around all those cellmates and going through that experience and not knowing what could happen to me every second?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a miserable place, miserable place to be. Uh, It smells bad. There's all these noises. The lights are always on. You're around a ton of, you know, criminals and there's violent people. There's people that you wouldn't want to be around or wouldn't choose to be around. Um, it's just a horrible situation you know and you have to adapt very quickly you have to be in survival mode um, so that's what happened early on. I realized that you know I'm not just fighting for my freedom but every day in here you have to just be prepared for worst case scenarios
0: Was there anyone on the outside talking to you and visiting you to see how you're doing or Did that friend ever come and see you and still be friends with you after the whole experience?
1: No, I've never talked to him since that night, to be honest with you. Um, And then as far as family, I had a lot of family support. Uh, My brother and sister would come and see me and write me letters. My uncle Mike would come and see me and write me letters. My dad came and saw me. I I mean, everyone in my family came and saw me at least once. Uh, My uncle Mike was there every weekend every weekend I would talk to them on the phone when I was able to use the phone. So early on, I was, I was still clinging on to hope that this thing would go away and I'd be released and sent home. And so I'd call home and talk to them about, you know, what are the lawyers saying? What's the investigator saying? And it was trying to figure out what is going on. Why are they pointing the finger at me? And the more time that went on, the more it was just apparent that, you know, the lawyers weren't really fighting for me. Um, they didn't believe that I was innocent all the people at the party either told on me and they said they, they thought they saw me attacking this guy or the police wrote the report up in favor of their um, judgment, like what they thought happened. So the police report basically said that I was seen on top of the guy striking down at him and um, they didn't say stabbing. They said striking, but they used the word striking to leave it, you know, up to your imagination. Like, okay, Sean's seeing striking down at this guy. And then he's laying there lifeless and Sean shirt's, Covered in blood. Like it looked really bad. No one saw the initial attack. No one saw when he actually got stabbed. They all came out of the party at the very end when I was getting tackled and then I'm getting up. And so it just looked really bad. And once I started to understand this, you know, and that it was really my fate or destiny to go to prison, like I started accepting that. And for the first time in my life, I just had time to think and reflect. I was sober now and I had more clarity. And I just, was reflecting on my entire life, not just this incident. And I started looking at the pain that I had suppressed from my past with my parents. I started looking at the way I had you know, neglected to deal with those, those issues and how they had come up time and time again um, throughout my life and caused me harm. And really just starting to face the reality that you know, that did happen, um, that my parents did leave us, that the pain that I tried to suppress, it was very real. And it had caused me so much harm throughout my life and I couldn't hide from it anymore. So for the first time in my life, I was honest with myself and I started to, to really just work through these things. And it was helping me to accept them, you know, so that I could start a healing process that would allow me to live the rest of my life with something that I never had before. And that was peace and gratitude and, and self-love. And those things had vanished from my life The day my dad went to prison, you know, those were all the emotions that I had inside of me as a kid. I love life. I love sports. I love the beach. I was so alive. But for a 10 year stretch there, I'd felt dead. I'd felt hopeless. And it was ironic that I had to go to this jail cell to, to start to tap back into that, that inner child, right. And cultivate that peace all over again. So that's what started to happen. Once I accepted that I was going to prison and that I couldn't change this scenario and what people thought, I just started to look within myself and I started to take extreme ownership of my faults, my wrongs from the past. I started to identify every little scenario and situation where I didn't act in alignment with who I really was. And I was creating this persona that I described to you earlier to protect myself and how maybe I wasn't guilty of the crime that they had charged me with, but I felt immense guilt for living my life as that person and and really neglecting myself and allowing 10 years to pass me by. So that's where I started to, to work through that stuff. And that's where I had so many profound realizations and epiphanies that started to change my life.
0: It sounded like that going through this process was a huge wake-up call. And it was the growth and the opportunity to learn about yourself and what you have put yourself through that you needed. Because I know looking at some of your, on your website and posts that you have, this journey has helped you become who you are today. And how you're going to do anything to help yourself and on that journey of growth, and how you're going to live the best life that you can live now.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll take it from there. So, <clears throat> absolutely. I mean, that experience was the best thing that ever could have happened to me in my life. You know, I want to change the thing. And people, will, they can't understand that. They think, oh my gosh, going to prison for something you didn't do for five and a half years, that's a long time. But that, that time, it's very small in comparison to what I've been able to take from that experience and that I could live the rest of my life with that understanding, right? With that perception, with all the changes that I was able to make. So what happened early on through just reflection every day and being honest with myself I started to see all the patterns of thought, all the behaviors, all the things that I had created to try and protect me, that had actually caused me harm. And I started to question them. You know, I started to question them and challenge my belief system. I started to really reflect on, is this who you are? Is this who you want to be? And the answer was no. And I was at first really distraught knowing that I had wasted 10 years of my life. I didn't play college sports. I didn't pursue my dreams. I didn't live as the person in my heart. I felt like I was, I was being, you know, a shadow of the man that I could have been. I was just allowing opportunities to pass me by. And I created this mentality that was really just based off avoiding, you know, fear. I was, uh, and it was really a lot of self-doubt because I wasn't taking actions that I wanted to take. So then I would just use drugs and alcohol to numb those feelings. And here I was really leading a life that I didn't want. And I didn't know how to get out of that. And I was stuck. So prison gave me the opportunity to change. And what I started to do was just envision, what, what do you want for yourself, Sean? What kind of life would you love to live? Um, and what happened was I started to tap back into that kid, that love life, that kid that was so passionate. My true and authentic self started to emerge. And I was sober. I was clean off drugs and alcohol entirely for the first time in a decade. So I started to have these emotions come alive inside of me. And my mind was you know, working like it it had never worked before, Uh, I had so much more clarity. So early on in jail, um, I I really started to tap back into that person. And what happened was, I knew that I had wasted my life. You know, I knew that I had wasted 10 years of my life, and I was going to do another five in prison, at least. And so instead of allowing that to just, you know, caused me to say, oh, I give up, my life's over, and to feel depressed and to feel sorrowful about those things. I made an internal commitment inside that jail cell that from this moment on, I'm going to live to the best of my ability as my true self in every moment forever. I'm never going to deviate from who I know I am ever again because look what it got me. You know, I'm never going to hold back from trying new experience or pushing myself or challenging myself because look what it got me. Right. Because the regret that I experienced inside that cell, knowing that I wasted my life, it killed me. It was worse than being incarcerated. It was the regret was worse than being uh, convicted of a crime. I didn't do. It was worse than losing my freedom for five years because I knew that I had these opportunities and I had wasted them and I could never get them back again. So that fueled me to change my life. And it gave me the the, the focus every day. To, to do everything to the best of my ability. Because even if I died in jail, I would have died with peace in my heart, gratitude and self-love, knowing that I had made that shift and that I had committed the rest of my life to being the person I knew I could be.
0: It's great to hear that you use this opportunity as a stepping stone towards a positive direction. You, get, you told yourself, I'm not going to fail. I'm not going to end it. I want to get better and do the best that I can do for myself. And that's always great that a lot of people, even in during the struggles that they're going through, they always just need that kind of that mental change or that mental mindset to get them onto that right path. And I think your story and sharing that, it shows that people can do that with any situation that they're going through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was because of the severity of my event that I paid attention and really was able to see with transparency You know, a lot of times people don't realize that day in and day out, they're doing things that don't serve them. You know, they're taking actions or not taking actions that don't align with the life that they really want. Right. And then we create these ways to, um, uh, we create these ways to like cope with that, that reality. So we keep ourselves in denial. We make excuses, we justify things, and then we complain about it. So we create these distorted ways of thinking to uphold these actions that don't serve us, right? So I think because of this, the severity of my event, I was able to see through the bullshit really quickly. And it was just that that transparency and that honesty that went to the core. Like, no, you led yourself here through those inferior actions, through your desire to use drugs and alcohol, through your choices, right? Through everything that you partook in, like you created this scenario, it wasn't the DA, it wasn't the police, it wasn't the the uh, witnesses who falsely accused me. I took responsibility for being in that cell, not because I committed the crime because I didn't do it, but because of the choices I made that led me down that path in life. And I felt like this was, you know, I guess you could say karma, or I had just created this scenario because of those poor choices. But that helped me for the first time in my life to just take ownership of a situation and not run from it. You know, I'd run from everything. I'd stay in denial. I'd numb myself with drugs and alcohol. Now I'm in a cell and I can't deny it. I can't run. Where am I going to go? I can't numb myself with drugs and alcohol. So I had to face it. But there's something so empowering when we do that. We take ourselves from that victim mentality to somebody who now has control over the situation. Even if it's a negative situation, if you're honest about it right, and you take responsibility, you now are able to face it, analyze it, try to find some solution or remedy versus when we're in this victim mentality, we try to suppress it. We ignore it. We keep ourselves in denial. And in that state, you can't do anything about it. So the outside situation, the external situation is happening to you, right? Well, in my situation, I was able to acknowledge it. I was able to take responsibility. And because I was honest, then I could look at it and say, okay, I can't change being confined. I can't change going to prison. But I do have control over my actions, my attitude. Every day, I do have much more control than I realize over how I changed and developed throughout this time. So that's where my mindset went. And that's what I immerse myself into every day is, what can I do to get 1% better? Because I was on a mission that I was going to go to prison and come home, the greatest version of me that I've ever been. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to live the greatest life that I ever could have imagined. And that's really, before I even left the county jail and went to prison, where my mindset was at.
0: I love that line, the greatest version of yourself. That's a line that's huge in my life also growing up and how we each day we can become better and grow as individuals. Talk about the moments when you're leaving jail and getting released. What was going on and how big of an impact was that for you?
1: Yeah, well, it was amazing because the five and a half years in prison were the Best five and a half years of my life to that point. The most productive, uh, the healthiest, right, mentally and physically. Um, my entire life changed. My perception. I mean, during prison, I got four college degrees. I mentored other inmates. I got in really good physical condition training, uh, studying physiology and, you know, exercise science and everything, so that I had aspirations to come home and work with people and train them. So I had a whole new. A whole new world to come back to essentially. And that was all created through my own perception and my, my attitude, my actions every day. And then the last day of prison, as I was waiting to be released, you know, I had about a hundred different inmates comment to me about, um, you know, the impact I had on them and saying thanks to me and, um, you know, wishing me luck out in the real world and, Just a lot of positive things that you normally don't hear from other inmates, especially when someone's going home because everyone wants to be that guy. So that experience taught me so much about the impact that we have on people and whether they tell you or not, right? Because this had been five years of me walking that straight line and doing what I knew was right and people were noticing, but they didn't always come up and tell me. So I knew in that moment that I was having an impact on people and I knew I could come home and continue to have that impact. And that just gave me so much hope and and inspiration. I already had a lot of it, but that just reinforced what I was feeling in my heart. And that was that this experience happened for a reason, that I have a message that people need to hear to help them change their lives. And that I could be the person to convey that message to help them change their actions and change their life.
0: Were you ever nervous about when you got out into the real world being exposed to alcohol and drugs? Instead of when you're in jail, it's kind of, can't have it inside that facility but now you're able to be around it were you ever nervous that it could lead to going back in the downward spiral again or your mind was i have a mission and that's what needs to be focused on
1: yeah so i mean one day when i was in county jail i was at court all day i was handcuffed down in a cell waiting to see the judge all day from 6 a.m till 4 p.m and i was just sitting there And I was reflecting on my life. And I was always in this dreamlike state of reflection and going through so much internally before I even went to prison. And that's when my transformation really began. So I told you about how I had that moment where I I made a declaration that I was going to give my all to my life forever, every moment, no questions asked, right? It's black and white. That's how drastic the shift in my mentality was. And the same thing happened with my substance abuse. I didn't want to abuse drugs and alcohol. I didn't want to Turned to drugs and alcohol. I knew they had caused me so much harm. They had killed people in my life. They had taken away from my life. Um, but I didn't know how to cope with what I had gone through otherwise. I couldn't identify with me, the person I was living sober. I couldn't see it. So it couldn't exist until I could see it and actually believe in it. And that's what happened. One day I was in the cell down below the courtroom. And this moment, you know, I'll never forget it. Out of nowhere, I just had the thought that I can live the rest of my life without using drugs and alcohol. I don't need to use drugs and alcohol ever again. And it was just such an empowering moment. It was just like, you know, massive breakthrough for me. It wasn't a question. It was a declaration. It was a definitive statement. So from that moment, I never touched drugs and alcohol ever again. That was over nine years ago. But in jail and prison, people bring drugs in all the time. They make jailhouse wine. So I was in prison. I'd see people high. I'd see people drunk. All the time. Um, But that's not who I wanted to be. I could have been getting high and drinking in there almost every day if I wanted to. And I had changed. I had changed entirely. So coming home, I wasn't concerned 1% about it. I knew who I was. And I mean, that shift that had taken place in me was so profound that there was no, no desire and no concern about me going back to that old lifestyle.
0: Talk about the entrepreneurial journey that you've been on with help being a life coach, fitness coach for people, and being an author. Talk about that journey that you have been on right now.
1: Yeah, it's been an amazing one. I mean, the template, the blueprint of me to be able to achieve what I want in my life was realized in jail, right? Once I realized how I could overcome my own shortcomings, my demons, and start to move towards my dreams, I'd just been continuing to replicate that process, right? So first it helped me to get clean and sober, then to educate myself and get college degrees, then to mentor inmates, then to, you know, work in the drug and alcohol programs in there. And it just continued to grow and grow from there. Once I realized, you know, how to do it, I could continue to replicate it. So when I came home, I wanted to help people. That was my number one focus and goal. And I was very much into health and fitness. I was in good shape, I had been working out and taking care of my mind and body and I knew that I could help others. So I didn't know how I was going to start doing that though. I went home and I'm staying on a trailer on my aunt and uncle's property. I have $200 in my pocket and I was just trying to figure out a way to get my foot in the door somewhere. So I had reached out to an old contact and he said that he was working at a gym. He was a personal trainer. He had a lot of clients and he could bring me on part time if I got certified. So for two weeks, I just locked myself in this, Room with a computer, and I studied. I did all the tests. I wrote all the essays. I passed the final exam. and I got certified. So now I had a job waiting for me um, in Goleta or in Santa Barbara, where I'm from. I was staying in Ojai when I got out of prison, where my family lives. And so, um, what happened was there was these fires in Ojai that burned down almost the whole town. My uncle almost lost his property. And then there was these mudslides two days after that shut down the freeway to get into Santa Barbara. So here I am, you know, fresh out of prison, trying to figure out how I'm going to move forward in my life. And there's all these challenges. There's so much adversity. And I ended up contacting someone I knew that flew a plane, right? Cause I have no idea how I'm going to get to Santa Barbara and start this new job. The freeways are shut down. Um, there's wildfires, fires everywhere. We're displaced from where we're staying. Uh, it was just chaos. So I ended up catching the plane ride with my friend who came to pick up his boss in my county into Santa Barbara on a Monday morning. So we fly in and as we're flying in, he's asking me, where are you going to stay? What are you going to do? I said, honestly, I got certified to be a personal trainer. I know that I have a job waiting for me and that's it. He's like, what? You don't know where you're going to stay or how you're going to get around. I said, no, he's like, look, my dad has rooms for rent. You should contact him when you get into Santa Barbara. So when we got into Santa Barbara, I went right to the gym. I met the owner of the gym And I met the trainer who was going to give me work and I secured my job. I was so excited. I just wanted to help people. I wanted to, you know, impact lives. So I had the job. Then I went to my friend's house and met my friend's dad uh, and he had a room and we talked for a little bit and he said, well, you can have it. And I literally gave him all of my money at that time. I had not very much money to secure my first month at that, that residence. But then I still needed to get around. I had no transportation. So My uncle's mechanic lived in Santa Barbara and I went and met with him and he had a lot of old beat up cars. He had cars that he was selling, that he was fixing up, um, but I couldn't afford anything. So he had this Honda Civic that had been almost totaled. The whole back end was smashed in all the way to the rear passenger seats. And he said, look, you know, for a thousand bucks, you could have this. And the car was in horrible condition. Like you never want to drive this car and be seen in it. You're just kind of like ducked when people that you know are driving by. But I took it because I had nothing else, right? And I had to start from somewhere. So that's how I started as an entrepreneur, right? I had an old beat up Honda Civic. I had a room for rent and I had a job as a personal trainer. So what I did is I just focused on the things within my control and started to give my all every day. And I was getting good results with my clients. I was starting to get comfortable working with people. Um, And from there, I realized, okay, this isn't like what I want. I want to have my own company. I want to branch out. I want to reach more people. So I left the gym and started my own fitness company and started acquiring clients and and working out of different gyms in Santa Barbara for the next year, getting good results with people and building up momentum on social media. And then I actually decided to take my business online and use that platform to reach more people and have more of an impact because I have the vision. The vision was given to me inside my jail cell. It wasn't to come home and just kind of, you know, strive for greatness or settle for mediocrity. Like I'm going to the stars, my man. So that's what I started doing. It was just step by step, right? Um, and so now I'm getting more clients, more awareness online, helping people. I'm still working in the gym. And then all of a sudden, coronavirus hits and the gyms are shut down, right? There's a pandemic and everyone's confined. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what am I gonna do now? Because you know, half of my clientele was in these gyms and my online business is just starting to take off, but it's not sustainable right now. And so that's when I realized like this, just like prison, just like going to prison, that moment was happening for me. And this is the mentality. This is why our minds are so powerful because I could have easily panicked and said, oh my gosh, you know, my dreams are crushed. Let me go call my uncle and see if I can go back to the tree industry. But I realized that this experience and just like all of the experiences of our lives, depending on how we perceive it, is happening to us or for us. I choose for me and I'm going to find a way to justify that belief. So I did. I sat there one morning at five in the morning, really stressed out because I had a newborn, another son who's 10. I'm with my wife now. And we have a baby on the way, like so much going on. I have to support my family, man. And I just realized that if I continue to follow my heart and help people and do what I know I'm capable of doing, I, I will be successful. So that's when I, I quit doing the physical training in the gyms. I didn't have an option at that point. I quit working as a fitness coach and I said, you know, I'm a life coach. I have more to offer. I have a bigger message. I want to share with people the things that help me through prison. I want to teach people how they can use those same mental strategies and lifestyle approach to their lives right now. People that are quarantined, that are going through stressful times, that are losing their jobs or they're um, suffering from depression or alcoholism. Like I want to reach those people. So I did. I started to and I've had tons of success in the past year working with people all over the world. I've grown my brand and my online platform. Um, and then during COVID, I decided to write a book. I wanted to write a book about my experience going to prison, how it changed me and inspire other people. So I wrote the book. So during COVID, really growing my online coaching platform and, and writing the book, which became a bestseller the first uh, two days that it was on the market. And yeah, it's been an amazing you know, last 12 months, man. So that's really the trajectory of my journey so far.
0: You mentioned your kids are at a young age right now. Looking at your experience when you were younger, is there anything that you're going to do differently to make sure that you leave a great impact on your kids' lives?
1: Yeah. I mean, a number of things, because from my past experience, I know you know what it's like to go through that pain of not having parents who are there. So one thing my dad always did was show me a lot of love and talk to me about things and acknowledge his true feelings and that he couldn't be the person he wanted to be for me. So I'm always going to use that. I'm always going to make sure that I convey to my children how much I love them. And I'm going to talk to them and teach them things every day. But I'm going to also show through my actions. So leading by example, I'm um, talking to them about health, about, you know, uh, making right choices and just be there for them every step of the way to set them up for success and to be at an advantage going into their later years in life, not at a disadvantage. Like I felt I
0: was. So what does the future look like for you personally and professionally? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years?
1: Yeah. So this year has been off to an amazing start. continuing to help people with my coaching program um, and then getting into public speaking and starting to travel and speak to um, different audiences throughout the country and world. With my message, um, I feel like I can reach people in different demographics that uh, could benefit from my story and the principles that I use to lead my life now and I've used to help countless people change their lives, right? So, whether it's uh, high level executives who struggle balancing work life, family time, and their own self care, or people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol like I once was, who haven't been able to face the pain in their demons and to overcome them. Um, I have very specific messages I want to share with people. So that's my focus this year is continuing to coach and help people and also public speaking and getting out there and sharing my message.
0: The final question I'll ask you is based on your journey and experience for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome challenges, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge?
1: Yeah, well, I tell my clients this all the time. You already have the answers. You have all the answers, right? I have nothing that I could give you that you already don't know. But a lot of times people just aren't aware of it or they don't know to tap into it and then utilize it to their advantage, right? So one of the most profound things that changed my life is time to reflect every day and just being honest with myself, right? Who are you? Where are you going in life? What do you really want? We always have these answers. We have this intuition that we ignore, we suppress it, right? Or we have this thought, like, I want to do this thing. But then the fear and doubt surface. Oh, but what if you fail? Oh, what will people think? Oh, you can't do that. And we allow that decision making process to dictate our actions every day. And what does that lead you? What does that lead you? What path does that lead you down in life? Probably one of, you know, mediocrity at best, probably one where you're going to have a lot of regrets one day in life. So I tell people this all the time. Imagine if you started following through with that, that intuition, that heartfelt message, and just taking small baby steps to start reinforcing that process in your life. What's going to change for you? So that's one big one. It's like pay attention to your 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 thoughts. And what, what are you breathing life into? What version of you are you breathing life into every day through your actions? You know, And from there, you're going to start to have so much more awareness as to how your decision making is dictating your actions and it's leading to the results you either want or don't
0: want. LaShawn, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people through your story, and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate you having me here. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.